You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Ray Blanchard was the psychologist in the Adult Gender Identity Clinic at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry between 1980 and 1995. Much of his research in those 15 years concerned transsexualism, as it was called then, and milder forms of gender identity disorders. In 1995, he was appointed head of the newly created Clinical Sexology Service at the CAMH. This unit comprised of the Adult Gender Identity Clinic and the Kurt Freund Laboratory, the latter being the oldest laboratory in North America for the psychophysiological assessment of erotic interests in sex offenders and other men with problematic sexual behavior. Since his retirement, he's continued to be active in research on human sexuality, often in collaboration with former students, colleagues, and their students. Today, Ray tells us how he got into the field, as he was primarily interested in conducting sex research, and he found himself in a gender identity clinic. He got really interested in boiling down the cumbersome and sprawling categorizations of gender dysphoria and de-emphasizing women's clothing to uncover the wider framework that explains a variety of behaviors. The term autogynephilia was born. Ray describes common misunderstandings about this term, and he addresses some of the myths about AGP, clusters of behaviors, and what he calls erotic mislearnings. Here's our conversation with Ray Blanchard. Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. How are you? I'm doing well. We're very excited to introduce Dr. Ray Blanchard to the program. We're so glad to have you today. Thanks for joining us. That's nice to be here. Um, we've been uh, we've been swimming in the seas of the pioneers for a few weeks now, and it's I've I've found it really compelling listening to people like you know Paul Vassy, Ken Zucker. And Mike Bailey and um, so many people um, are really receiving it very well. And they're, it feels like it's kind of uncharted waters that nobody, I don't feel that nobody else has brought together all of your kind of era of sexologists and researchers who did so much work that was, it was like you were off doing something almost off in your own world or in your own field doing it and suddenly it's become the zeitgeist it's become the moment and everybody wants you so um would you like to tell us to start off how you got into it and you know what first spiked your interest in the whole thing all right well i i guess my i began work in sexology because uh the first job the first permanent full-time job i had was in a prison and in that prison, well, all prisons have a lot of sex offenders, but this one supposedly specialized in group treatment or whatever for sex offenders. And so there were a lot of sex offenders there. And there was a man named Kurt Freund, who was a great, great sexologist. And he used to consult there. He came there about three half days a week. It wasn't like he needed the work, but it was a a source for him also of his research. So by speaking to him, or I, I eventually had a conversation with him, and uh, 
that first gave me the idea that I might be interested in in human sexuality. At this point, I was like, I guess in my 30s. And I can honestly say that never for one second had it ever crossed my mind that I would do research in human sexual behavior. Never. But after this conversation with Freud, I was so inspired that I thought, gee, this is kind of an interesting area. And at that time, my aspirations were, gee, it would be very, would be nice if before I die, I could do one or two papers on this topic. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it went a little further than that. So I was at the prison and my initial interest was in the sex offenders, in particular pedophiles, not because I was that interested in pedophilia per se, but because the pedophiles were relatively homogeneous, let's say compared to offenders against adult women who can be like anything, you know? So I liked the pedophiles as a research group because they were more homogeneous. Uh, however, the first job that came... Oh, sorry. Could I just ask? Sorry, just that sentence you just said was quite interesting. You said that the, 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 the pedophiles were homogeneous, but the uh, the offenders against women could be anybody. They weren't... Well, I, don't, I didn't mean that could be yeah, anybody like you your father yeah. or your brother. I meant they, they, they have you know, a very, very wide range of presentations. Some probably have no paraphilic uh, tendencies whatsoever, and they're just you know bad guys or, or guys who did a bad thing. Uh, because of circumstances, and they run the range from that to people who have a uh, a specific uh, desire for a, a non-consenting female, you know, where you start to get something that looks pretty much like sadism. So they're quite diverse in their presentations and probably in their motivations. Compared to pedophiles, there are a lot of non-pedophilic men who do offend against a child sexually, you know, maybe once or twice, but by and large, they're, they're, they're more homogeneous than offenders against adult women. In what way can you just, I mean, this is such a fascinating topic. I don't mean to derail us, but in what way are the pedophilic offenders homogeneous? Well, a, a lot of them, I would say 50%. Well, if you, if we look at a people, men with one offense against a prepubescent child, okay, mm-hmm. one offense, which is your, your point of maximum uncertainty, probably a good 50% of them right there uh, have an erotic preference for children over, over adults, over adults with an adult physique. And as you start getting into men with two and three and five and 10 offenses against children, more and more of them are true pedophiles who really are attracted to the immature physique. Okay. Whereas... I think if you look at, you know, single time offense, single offense rapists, I very much doubt if you would get anything like 50% of them uh, having some kind of sadistic underlying motivation. You know, they're, they're, they're screw up guys who, who do, do things that guys do, you know. So okay. those might be cases where they're taking advantage of an opportunity or a really vulnerable person or are drinking and have a one-time offense as opposed to individuals with a sadistic preference have a kind of perpetual pattern of wanting harm to be part of the sexual experience. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, I'm saying that a, a lot of offenders against adult women do not have a preference for a non-consenting woman. It's just that they were in some circumstance where oh, I there was a non-consenting woman and they took advantage of it. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay, okay, interesting. 
So you're saying that the men who committed two, three, four, or multiple offenses against prepubescent children had a, a pattern of being aroused by prepubescent children's bodies Correct. compared to men who are turned on by adult bodies. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the men, men with okay. multiple offenses against prepubescent sure. children, by and large, have a preference for the, the immature physique over the mature physique. Okay, okay. So, so you're you're fascinated by this other um, sexologist, and you start thinking maybe I will research this and write a paper or two in my career. So, pick it up from there. We derailed yeah. you big time. Pick it up <laughs> it was, from there. It was very interesting, but we did. Yes, derail it. yeah. Definitely. Okay. Uh, well, what happened then was that a job came uh, open at the what was then called the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto. Now it's called the Center for. Then it amalgamated with three other hospitals and is now called the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And the job that came open was in a gender identity clinic. It was a clinic whose mandate was to approve provincial reimbursement for sex reassignment surgery. At that point, I wasn't specifically interested in gender identity disorders. In fact, I wasn't really that interested in them. I was much more interested in in uh, what I thought were un more uncomplicated paraphilias, where it's a sexual deviation and and not a lot of other compli you know stuff. Uh, however, I knew that jobs where I could uh, do research on human sexuality were not going to grow on trees. So I was, I you know, I, I tried as hard as I could to get the job at the gender identity clinic, even though gender identity disorders were not something that was high on my list of uh, human sexual behaviors that interested me at that time. I can get back now onto part of the question, which was uh, my formulation of autogynophilia. So I was not young at that point, but younger, a lot younger than I am now. And I prepared for my interview at the gender identity clinic as if I were a graduate student getting ready to take my, my final doctoral exams. So some psychiatrists who worked there had, had in those days, you had uh, photocopies, reprints were like photocopies. He handed me a stack of photocopied articles that was like literally probably 14 inches high. And I studied every one. I was in Aww. case somebody should say, well, on, on how, how compare and contrast Smith and Jones 1974 with Green and Martin 1978. You know, I, 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 I that was how I approached the my job interview of course nothing like that happened at all the only question i can remember was some inanity about oh well if you're interested in working here you must uh have very little castration anxiety and i was thinking why should i have castration anxiety nobody's talking about castrating me but i do i do wow. remember, i do remember that that was the one that's the one question i remember from my job interview <laughs> nobody was asking me details about about publications from 20 or 40 years previously. Anyway, because I had gone into this job studying all of the prior literature, I already knew that there was a, a great variety of presentation in adult gender patients, particularly in adult male gender patients. So I wasn't shocked by any means that there was a class of adult male patients who had histories of erotic arousal in association with cross-dressing or something, some other activity that kind of symbolized uh, femininity. 
to them. This, this was not a shock to me. People knew it. Other clinicians had written about it. Lots of other clinicians had written about it. Uh, but the status at that point was that although there were, among people who were experienced clinicians, it was well understood that there was a variety of presentations, but there was no agreement on how many different types there were or what the characteristics of the different types were. And that was the starting point of my work, is there's been all of these different types of transsexualism proposed. How many basically different types are there? And how many of these presentations can be collapsed into as being minor variations of uh, a more fundamental subtype? So when you were entering the field, what were the classifications? I mean, was there uh, fetishistic transsexualism? Like what was around before you came in and started to propose designations? Oh, geez. Going all the way back to like the days of Hirschfeld, maybe not 1910 when he wrote his book about transvestism, but later writings in the in the 1920s or 1930s, they were already, people were already uh, classifying transsexuals as heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, asexual. So that idea went back a long time. Um, there were uh, there was a couple of psychoanalytic writers who were quite influential, Ethel Person and Lionel Ovisi. They classified transsexuals as a, a true or primary transsexual versus um, what they called a homosexual transsexual, which to them meant a very feminine gay man who kind of jumped the tracks and became transsexual. And they also had a third category of transvestitic transsexuals. So they, they knew perfectly well that in the history of some of a lot of patients, there is something that looks like ordinary homosexuality, although in very feminine men. And there was also something that looks like fetishistic transvestism that progresses to a desire for sex reassignment. Okay. So these were some of the some of the classifications. Um, and then of course people often differentiated between primary transsexualism and secondary and they there just were various different ways of slicing up the the pie. And you you're you're quite um you seem quite humble in it as if you're saying Everybody kind of knew it. People were talking about it. You kind of read the literature and um, you you kind of knew your stuff and you could see what way the wind was blowing. And then you moved on to create a typology. Is is that a correct analysis of how it emerged? Yeah, that's, that's correct. My, my approach was, how can I boil down this mass of different proposed subtypes of transsexualism to a smaller number? Or can I boil down this this confusing mass of different diagnostic categories into a smaller number? That was my approach. And how can I get this number how down? How did you do it? Well, I started by uh, going back to more or less what Hirschfeld had done, which was classifying. And I was mostly interested in males because the male presentations were far more variable than the presentations among the biological females. That might not be true now, but in my day, it was true. So before anybody, well, why were you ignoring women? Well, it was I wasn't. It was just that the um, the topic that interested me, which was uh, descriptive pathology, or what used to be called descriptive pathology, you would probably get your tongue torn out for saying that now, um, uh, it, it was a much more interesting topic with regard to uh, the anatomic males. Um, and before you just tell us how you did distill it down, 
into that. Could you just tell me, I'd be interested, you say that the women were really of a type. What was that type? Almost every single patient that we saw when I was in the gender clinic, which was 1980 to 1995, almost every single one was erotically attracted to other females. Okay. I think in the entire time I was there, maybe two biological females presented who said, I feel like a gay man and I want surgery to become a gay man. Nowadays, I think, especially among the ROGD girls, this is not a rare presentation. But back in those days, that was a super rare presentation. So that's why I wasn't interested. You know, the females were interesting, but they weren't what I was interested in doing. Yeah, there certainly wasn't a mass of different types. There was a type and it was a kind of a masculine woman type, I suppose, who who was erotically attracted to women. And you could see the type and you said, that's the type. It's it's sorted, really. Yes. Yes, exactly. You didn't need additional sorting, which seemed to be your motivation to study the males. You were like, I want to help resort this mass, massive jumble of males. That's correct. Okay. I mean, I didn't totally, I didn't totally ignore biological females. In fact, the first article that I ever published in the area of gender identity disorders was a follow-up study, uh, you know, having to do with treatment outcome on biological females. So I didn't ignore mm-hmm. them. I started looking at biological females, but it wasn't the topic where I thought I could uh, make my biggest contribution. Got it. So go ahead. Anyway. Yeah. So how did I proceed? I went back to one of the early classification systems by Magnus Hirschfeld, where he he talked about the bisexual, asexual, homosexual, heterosexual grouping. Uh, It was actually a tiny bit more complicated than that, but let's leave it at that. And so I divided male patients into those four groups, and then I compared them with regard to a variety of variables, like age of presentation, history of... Uh, masturbation with articles of women's attire, other stuff like that. And I was looking to see which of these groups look similar to the other groups and which, if any, look quite dissimilar. And by that process of comparing the homo, hetero, bisexual, asexual groups, I came to the conclusion that the homosexual male to females by homosexual, I mean attracted to other anatomic males, they appeared to be a distinct group. The other three categories, the heterosexual, asexual, and bisexual, all looked like they were related to each other and related to fetishistic transvestites. That was my method of proceeding, and that was how I got to my conclusion. How many people did you look at in, in these kind of initial studies, or what was your sample size? It was in the few hundreds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't remember, sure. you know, that was a long, uh, yeah, it was in the few hundreds. I mean, I, the, 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 the subjects were all patients. I didn't go out recruiting control subjects from the, the general population. It wasn't relevant to what I was doing. So I based my work on patients and these patients had nice data, had good data. This wasn't using, uh, you know, mechanical Turk or survey monkey or whatever to ask random questions from God knows who on the internet. These were patients who had been through very intensive, uh, psychiatric intakes. All of them had been interviewed by m- multiple people at intake by, uh, in most cases, two psychiatrists and often also a psychiatrist or a social worker. So you could look at 
just just their intake interviews and uh and do a fairly good job of saying I'm going to classify this person into this group. And so you classified them um into if I'm right the homosexual transsexual and the autogynophile. Well, I'm sure there's a better phrase than that. <laughs> Uh yes yeah. that was that that was what eventually I did. I mean before I invented the word autogynophilia I already knew that the the asexual bisexual heterosexual transsexuals and fetishistic transvestism had something in common but there was no word for the thing that they all had in common and that led me to inventing the word autogynophilia. Can you talk about that process like what were you picking up on that helped you come to that term? Because you said, you know, the homosexual transsexuals were a distinct group. And then these other three groups had something in common with the fetishistic transvestism. But you were obviously piecing together what that common thing was. Just talk to us about what was going on for you at the time. What were you noticing? What were you seeing? At the time, the only way, the the way everybody talked about... um, autogynophilia was they used the label of transvestic fetishism or something like that, which really puts a focus on the idea of women's garments Mm. that a guy or a boy puts on women's underwear or a a bathing suit, usually some article of intimate attire, although not always. And that whole concept really focused the attention of clinicians on cross-dressing. And if they didn't see masturbation or erection with cross-dressing to them, that that entity was not there. Uh, once again, my mentor Kurt Freund, who I continued to you know be associated with after I moved from the prison to the hospital, uh, had already written a paper in which he pointed out that uh, some men are sexually aroused by things that are not women's clothing, but are related to the idea of being a woman, like a patient who was sexually aroused by shaving his legs and imagining that he was a woman shaving his legs. I've seen patients who were sexually aroused by putting on makeup and not by clothing in particular. So his work started me on this idea of uh, tying tying this thing that I'm going after too closely to the idea of women's apparel is not the right direction to go in. I need to go in the other direction and see, you know, what is something that, that could underlie uh, sexual arousal by women's attire, but also underlie other paraphilic behaviors that didn't involve women's attire, but something else that might be symbolic of femininity. And then eventually I just got to the idea of, oh, it's, it's the idea of being a woman, you know? And- that's was it. it. Was it like, you know, the, the, the apple landing on, on the head? Or was it a day? Was there a moment? Or did you circle it? <laughs> um, I, I think it was sort of something in between. There was one particular, I mean, the, the idea was growing in my mind of uh, there needs to be some other concept besides uh, a concept that focuses so much on clothing. I understood that. And then, so the the idea was growing. And then eventually I saw this one patient uh, who never cross-dressed, basically. Uh, I think he had cross-dressed maybe once in his life, Uh, but he was quite, he was quite strongly gender dysphoric. He was, you know, to the point of being depressed by it. But uh, his entire, his entire uh, thing was 
that when he masturbated, he would imagine himself as a naked woman lying alone on her bed. Uh, just, just a naked woman. He would picture himself having women's breasts, a vulva, the, the broad hips of a woman, the contours that he pictured himself as a naked woman. He didn't picture himself, uh, having intercourse as a woman with anybody else. And as I said, he, he didn't cross dress, although he was a grown man. He lived on his own. He could have cross dressed every night if he had wanted to. So this was like, the closest thing to a single aha moment where I realized this is it. This is the pure culture. This is autogynophilia in the absence of any confusion with women's attire or anything like that. That is so fascinating. And was this man quite distressed by his experiences? I mean, I can imagine that these patients were acutely aware that something is unusual in their experience. Well, sure, he was gender dysphoric. I mean, he was he was quite strongly gender dysphoric. That was why why he presented. He was having a lot of depression. Yeah. Um so yeah, with of course he knew he was an intelligent man. Mm-hmm. Uh Oh, the other thing about this patient that helped, that made an impression on me was he was intelligent, he was articulate, articulate, and he had no reason for lying, you know, no reason for distorting his presentation. And was there differences in, uh, for example, you know, people often mention technology with, with autogynophiles and let's say, you know, perhaps there's maybe more certain type of personalities compared to the homosexual transsexuals, did you you notice that they're they're a different type of people, if you follow me? Or were they? Well, I I think anybody with like one and a half grams of clinical judgment uh, would see that if who interviewed uh, or even saw on YouTube (laughs) one transsexual of either type would say, oh, this is these are different animals. Yeah, but for for people to know, could you could you could you describe it? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So that people could let's say if if my my brother was listening, I think it is important that listeners do hear about it. How well? It's, I'm I'm trying to think how. I mean, I obviously don't want don't want to name names, although I could because there are uh, there are transsexuals of both types on YouTube, and somebody. I could, like there's Jazz Jennings and there's like Caitlyn Jenner. They're they're very different types of people. If you follow me, yeah, Jenner is is. Uh, I'm not going to say which type I think Caitlyn Jenner is, but, you know, she's out there. And she could be contrasted with, oh, there's another transsexual, Blair White. You know who Blair White is. So I would say it's a matter of watch one YouTube uh, podcast, you know, YouTube video by Blair White and one by Caitlyn Jenner. And then tell me if you think, oh, yeah, they're exactly like each other, you know. Mm -hmm. And when you when you um, when you wrote that, let's say you kind of seem to you wrote the paper, let's say in 1989 and you had figured it out, you had written your typology. And I just I noticed Mike Bailey talking when we interviewed him there a week or two ago and he said, I didn't realize Ray had done this work. And it was in the 90s. And he was, you know, he was like kind of going as if you had quietly done the work, but the, it hadn't really kind of you 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 just moved on. You know what I mean? That's the way that's the way I kind of interpreted. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how I interpreted what had happened. 
Well, okay. When I when I wrote the early papers, when I wrote the Autogonophilia papers, at that point, first place, there was, for all intents and purposes, no internet for normal people. I mean, there was an internet being used by the military or something like that, but ordinary people in their homes did not have the internet. And I could not have begun to foresee what that would mean. So I published these articles and put them in specialty sexology journals that had paid circulations literally of maybe a thousand copies yeah. per issue. Yeah. So I had no expectation whatsoever that my autogonophilia papers were ever going to be seen by anybody but a handful of subspecialist clinicians. Wow. Uh, it got it got a small amount of attention, but not a great deal of attention. And, you know, I moved on and did other research topics. You know, I would have liked to have gotten more attention at the time, but I knew that I was writing for, for a specialty audience. I wasn't expecting to make a giant splash. So, you know, I just, I finished my work there and thought I had done all that I could do. I moved on to other topics. I want at that time, because I know, like, for example, today, if you are, let's say you're a young person, or you are an, an adult with some kind of symptom, because of the internet, you know, people go online and start researching what their symptoms could mean, and they gather a lot of information. When you were writing about autogynephilia, were there actual patients who were stumbling upon your academic articles in these specialty journals and getting in touch or saying, hey, this resonates with me? Like, was that even... A, a way that people understood their symptoms by like looking into medical literature about it? Well, there was one person, which was Anne Lawrence, oh, who's, yeah. who, with whom you're probably familiar. Yeah. Anne Lawrence uh, was, is, I guess, a physician and uh, was working in a hospital, undoubtedly had uh, much easier access to the journals I was publishing in than, than your average person would have had. And so Anne found out about my work from the original articles that I had published in these tiny circulation specialty journals. And so she is one example of somebody who, who did find out about my work that way. And then she started, uh, Anne was an early, an early adopter of internet, uh, technologies. And so she started, I don't know, not tweeting because there was no Twitter <laughs> at that point, but she started doing something on the internet, uh, talking about my work. And that began, a uh, a pre that began the process of publicizing it a little bit. Although of course it was the publication of Mike Bailey's book that really blew the lid off. And just in case audience members don't know, Anne Lawrence is a transgender woman who wrote, a, I believe, a book or a paper called Men, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies. Is, is that correct, Ray? That's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's actually a, her book, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies, is like an encyclopedia of autogonophilia. I mean, that's like the definitive yeah. work. She, she wrote everything that I, 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 was a, that I would never have, you know, I would never have written a whole book on that topic. Uh, but she did, and she did a fantastic job. And because she is herself uh, a self-admitted, well, she's a rare bird because she is uh, a self-admitted autogynephilic male-to-female transsexual, but she is able to write about this topic without distortions and defensiveness. And 
Uh, so that makes her work extremely valuable. And also, she was obsessional scholarship. Uh, so that everything you want to know <laughs> about autogynophilia is in men trapped in men's bodies. And you could just tell by the title of the book that she's not exactly orthodox. I mean, when I, when I asked her, what are you calling your book? And she said, men trapped in men's bodies. I was like, whoa, you know. Uh, but, Amazing. Yeah. I might, I, yeah. Is it a good read? I might read that. I have it still. Have I'll you? send it to you. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I'm dying to read it. It's, you know, I, I think for your average person, it's probably more than they than they need to know. But, uh, you know, if you read the first three or four chapters, you're certainly, uh, you know, an excellent summary of what is known. And she just does a fantastic job. She did a better job than I would have done if I had chosen to write a book, which I and didn't. And so you let out your paper. It, it, you hoped it would cause a bigger splash, but it got recognized. It got noticed. And off you went into other subjects, which we would, I'm dying to get, ask you about as well, because I think it's very interesting. And uh, But just to continue with this, and like we're, we're hopping forward a good 15 years or 14 years and Mike Bailey released his book. Um, so the, in those between 1989 and 2003, I suppose it was just tootin' along that that's you had done your typology. Were, were people diagnosing it? Were people using these words? Was it or was it a very small field? It was a very small field. It was really a small field. You know, I mean, people who. Well, you mentioned Steve Levine. People like Steve Levine probably had uh, had okay. come across my work. Other so, but you know, the whole there wasn't not only not only scholarly writings about gender identity disorders, but the whole the whole enterprise of gender identity clinics. It was a much much smaller deal in those days. It wasn't like oh, now. No. And then Mike released his book, and w- were you trepidatious? Did you think, okay, this is going to be? intense or were you like me no i i had some conversation with him um saying you know this 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 might produce some some flack uh his publishers for example picked the uh cover art and it was a picture of a guy with hairy legs and high heeled shoes and whatnot it wasn't mike's choice it was the publisher's choice um and i and i I thought, yeah, you know, some of this stuff uh, might stir up a little resentment, but I had no idea that there were going to be uh, high-profile, senior, powerful uh, transsexuals who were going to go after his job and try to get him fired or any of the stuff that actually happened to him. I thought it would be a little a little nasty comment here and there. I wasn't expecting a systematic persecution of yeah. him and attempt to get him fired from his job. You know, you know, we, we talked to Mike about this. And then also we talked doctor to Dr. Zucker about his experience with the clinic closing. And even though your name, of course, Dr. Blanchard comes up all the time when we're talking about, you know, transgender, transsexualism and AGP. I'm not very familiar with whether or not you had any significant backlash. I mean, I know that your name is almost a dirty word in some of the trans activist circles. Like I am very well aware of that. So I guess congratulations or I'm sorry for that. I don't know how you take it. But did you have after Mike Bailey's book was published, did you get a resurgence of interest in your work and or any backlash or criticism? What was that like? 
Well, I, I well, of course, uh, you know, people who wanted to uh, trash Mike Bailey's book necessarily had to trash me along with it because right. most of what they objected, most of what people objected to in Mike's book was the parts that were about autogynephilia. There wasn't any enormous backlash on what he had to say about the homosexual type of male to female gender dysphorics. You know, there wasn't, there was some squawking about it, just squawking about everything. But, but the real, the real, uh, problems had to do with autogynephilia. So naturally, I got pulled into uh, the criticism there. Now, I did have one enterprising Canadian transsexual try to get me fired. Uh, but it, it, you know, this person was just uh, not terribly effective. Uh, you know, they, they did, they did, you know, go to every they did go to my hospital. They went to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. They 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 left complaints every place they could think of. But they were making really nutty accusations, like I was personally responsible for the deaths of. This seems improbable. I I I, I want to say thousands of Canadian transsexuals, but I think they might have actually said hundreds of thousands of Canadian <laughs> transsexuals. So they they overplayed their hand a little bit with regard to their accusations because it would be hard to conceal a hundred thousand bodies of Canadian transsexuals, and um, and then they. Uh, <laughs> This individual became impatient that the CAMH was not firing me fast enough, so they started lobbing accusations against the CEO and senior administration. Well, that's not the thing you do if you're trying to get somebody canceled. So, you know, so I was lucky. Um, in general, I was lucky. I feel like, uh, you know, I said what I had to say, and then I got out of Dodge before <laughs> before it became, uh, you know, really you know, really dangerous place to be. Uh, were you continuously asked to come back and you said, nah, I've done my piece and I don't need to come back into the world of gender? I often get the impression when I see you, I think that's exactly what you did, that you you made your work and you kind of moved on and you said, let let the rest go off with their gender stuff. It's uh, I'm going to get into kind of sexual orientation and, and things like that that you got into. It was more or less like that, although it wasn't that I had any particular, um, you know, disenchantment with with working in a gender clinic at that time. But in 95, my mentor, Kurt Freund, uh, he, he died in 95 or 96, I forget which year. But when he died, I took over his operation, which was a specialty clinic for the assessment of sex offenders. So 15 years after working in a gender clinic, I at last got the job that I would have wanted in the first place, which mm. was, you know, the uh, to be focusing on sex offenders and, oh my and God, I'd that forgotten. aspect. <laughs> okay, that, that, that was the whole point. I'd forgotten way back that was what you were trying <laughs> to get the job in. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. 
If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. Okay, I think this would be a really good time just to directly ask you a question, and I'll tell you the, the back story here. There's been a lot of discussion on social media and different places online about the idea that if you see, um, like, let's say an early emergence of some autogynephilic behavior in a child, let's say you have six-year-old, seven-year-old, 10-year-old who begins um, wearing women's clothing and masturbating, let's say. Several people online have implied that that is a good indicator that they might be a sexual abuse victim. And since we have you here, an expert in autogynephilic behavior and somebody who spent a significant amount of time in the assessment of sex offenders, can you just comment on, on whether or not this link or this assumption or this red flag, as people say, is really accurate? Like, just talk about what you think there. Well, in general, I don't like to comment on things that I don't have specific you know, research experience or knowledge of. But in this case, I'll make an exception because I think there's just so much rot online. Um, I don't think that there is any particular correlation between being sexually abused in childhood and developing autogynephilic gender dysphoria or between being sexually abused in childhood and developing the homosexual subtype of gender dysphoria. I do not think there is any correlation. And while I'm on this topic, I'll move to a closely related one. A lot of people who want to put everything they regard as bad in one basket claim that, uh, that male to female transsexuals are more likely to be pedophiles. I think that's absolute nonsense. I, I worked in both areas, you know, 15 years in a gender clinic and 15 years in a specialty clinic for the assessment of sex offenders. And I don't think there is any uh, any overlap between gender dysphoria and pedophilia, except for what you would expect by chance. And could I ask, um, when when is the... When is the earliest, because a lot of this discussion went on, like, can some people who, who are autogynophiles, can they develop that interest in either females' clothes or, you know, the various kind of manifestations of that prepubescent? Can it arrive before their sexual awakening? Yes, that can and do. I mean, if you're if if you if you if you're lucky enough to have a patient, uh, I don't know if they exist anymore. Patients who haven't been contaminated by going online and are just giving you, you know, a virgin interview, uh, they they will report uh, that when they were in in earlier childhood, prior to puberty. Not that they had erections or masturbation, but a specific fascination with maybe a sister's bathing suit or some article of female clothing. So at that age, prior to puberty, prior to the beginning of testosterone, yes, you see indications of it, but it expresses itself at that point as a fascination with, with articles of female attire or a fascination with something else symbolic of femininity. So it doesn't look like Oh, yeah, putting on panties and masturbating, mm. but there's something there that is not happening with other boys. Right. 
And last question around this, well, from me at least. Oh, yeah. Are you, I've won or two. <laughs> are you aware of any research, Dr. Blanchard, about uh, like a hereditary component in males who exhibit autogynephilia and their sons exhibiting those traits? Two people uh, uh, published articles or chap- book chapters maybe in which they, they looked at uh, – Pedigree, what they could put together of pedigree studies involving autogynephilic and homosexual transsexuals. These are both very small scale studies. Both of them found that if you have multiple cases of gender dysphoria in the same family, they're either of the autogynephilic type or of the homosexual type, but you don't get both types in the same pedigree. As I said, these are very small-scale, rather informal studies that people put together from what patients they saw themselves or what they read in clinical case reports. But both studies came to that same conclusion. And were you It would be a- nice to have a pedigree study, a formal pedigree study, but there's yes. no way you could do it because yeah. I don't know how you I don't even know how you could do this kind of research anymore because I think if you try to go online and recruit people, you're just going to get a whole ton of people who are deliberately going to try and screw up your survey. That's right. It's, it's my hunch. And you mentioned people are kind of contaminated by the way these ideas are discussed on the internet. And I guess just one other thought about that in that small pedigree study, do you know if they screened for sexual abuse or abuse or anything along those lines? Because I think some people seem to believe that if there does happen to be uh, this gender dysphoria that runs in the family amongst males, that the implication is perhaps the child male was abused by the adult male. So I'm wondering, do you have any idea if they screened for abuse in those studies? No, as I said, these were very informal studies where people, you know, at some point said, yeah, I've seen three cases like this and I'm going to go back and check the charts. And, they'll, you know, they might have then surveyed the literature to see if there were any clinical vignettes anywhere. But nobody did a formal study there screening out, uh, you know, for any kind of childhood experience or whatever. No. Uh, and another uh, question that's kind of been burning along a lot of people's minds is around are any of these, um, let's say, to be autogynophile or even homosexual, transsexual, could it be innate? And it seems to be a very incendiary question, even, let alone answer. And it seems to be, uh, it, it, it causes a huge amount of distress for people when, when it's asked or when it's discussed. And I suppose I think the most important thing for us in, in the idea of, of, of having this podcast is to make sure that we keep our eye on the target of, of trying to expose as much truth around gender as we can so that we are all more informed about it. And what is your own position around something being innate in this? Okay. I don't think that people are born with fully formed paraphilias, fully formed specific paraphilic interests. And I don't think that anybody is born with a fully formed cross-gender identity. What I think is that people are born with predispositions or vulnerabilities to a kind of erotic mislearning, uh, which then predisposes them to things like autogynephilia, uh, perhaps it predisposes them to uh, 
to develop a cross-gender identity. I think the same thing could be said of pedophilia, of exhibitionism, of a variety of erotic phenomena. I don't think people are born with that specific crystallized paraphilia, but they're born with something, some kind of defect such that erotic learning is not self-correcting. I would put it that way. And it's it's almost like an awful lot of different human conditions where you could say some people are born with there's there's a weakness in the family for for schizophrenia or there's a weakness for, you know, diabetes and they mightn't develop it. But given the right circumstances, they could more easily develop it. Is it along those lines? Yes. And I I think that this idea of a a vulnerability, a predisposition to develop paraphilic interests explains why paraphilias tend to cluster. Um, An individual who has one paraphilia has a higher probability of having a second different paraphilia than somebody who has no paraphilia. So there is a tendency for paraphilias to to cluster uh, in individuals. I wouldn't push that too far, and not all paraphilias cluster, but some paraphilias definitely cluster. Uh, autogynophilia and masochism, for example, or an, an autogynophilia, masochism, and what we might call stuff fetishism, fetishism for particular materials like leather, silk, rubber. Um, these things tend to cluster, and I think the reason they cluster is because the individual is born with a predisposition to develop paraphilias, and so they develop more than one. And I think that explains why people develop more than one. That is very, very interesting because I like one thing that keeps coming up as you talk is that a lot of individuals today who maybe have some sort of gender dysphoria and where the ideology of it comes from is not the main point here, but they, there are so many interests right now in couching one's story or one's experience within the narrative that is commonly accepted about what it means to be gender dysphoric or what it means to be trans. And I can, I can sense when I'm working with patients that they're, there's almost scripted uh, qualities to the way they talk about things. And I'm very curious when you were doing your research before the internet became ubiquitous, let's say, I would uh, imagine that you were getting more of um, a genuine and um, unfiltered version of people's personal experiences around their sexuality or these experiences. Like, Did you find in these early days that people were, I guess, pretty upfront and straightforward about their experiences? Like, of course, we don't know what the client or patient is not telling us, of course. So I understand there's even a bias inherent in answering this. But I feel like when I work with young people today, it takes forever to get past all the scripts to talk about what's really, really happening and, you know, the way you were talking about masochism being connected with AGP, like, that's very interesting. And do you feel like people were pretty straightforward when they were describing their sexuality to you? I know that's a weird, long question. <laughs> well, I definitely, I got the gist of okay. it, though. Yeah, I, I think I was lucky in that I was working in this area before before gender identity became politicized. And uh, so when I was interviewing patients, I dealt with the normal kind of 
um, embarrassment, evasion, denial, defensiveness that you get from patients, that you always get from patients, but they weren't coming in having already read everything that I had written about autogynophilia and, you know, preparing to give me, you know, pre-recorded rebuttals, okay? Uh, and, and, of course, you know, it was... It was uh, People are embarrassed to say, "Oh yeah, you know, when I was when I was twelve, I was always grabbing my mom's panties and masturbating, and then I would have to try and put them back so that she would." You know, people people don't just cheerfully come into your office, take their coats off, and start talking about this stuff. But um, but but they they would once they sensed that you were. Yeah. had a sincere interest that you were not disapproving that you weren't judging uh they would tell they would tell tell me stuff i don't know what it's like to interview a gender patient now i suspect that it would be a lot more contaminated by what people have uh seen online and and to go back to this erotic mislearning or the kind of the 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 kind of almost the inability to correct your erotic um, what's the word? Extremities. Um, the, d- are, is it almost a case where somebody could have, uh, let's say, that weakness, that vulnerability to not to erotic mislearning, and they could become paedophiles, or they could become paraf- a paraphilia could develop. It could almost go any way of any of these. Is that where you're going, or is it a different way? Uh it's it's sort of where I'm going, but with one qualification, which is, uh, as I, I, I initially said, and I stand by that, that having one paraphilia predisposes you to develop additional paraphilias, but it's not completely at random. Certain paraphilias tend to cluster with other oh, paraphilias. So you said autogynophiles don't cluster with paedophiles, but right, yeah, but, but they, they do cluster, cluster with, with yeah. Stuff, what I call masochism. stuff fetishism, they st- cluster with masochism, yes. And uh, do you think, uh, let's say paedophiles, because I know you've worked a lot in this, uh, do you think they have the same, it's pretty much the same um, understanding you have, uh, for you, I think, of how a paedophile develops? Is they're born and then there's some sort of erotic mislearning weakness within them that um, continues unchecked? Would that be right? Yeah. That's what I think. There's some kind of erotic mislearning that occurs in pedophiles. Some some process that should correct your erotic attention to and, and, and redirect it towards adults if it's straying to something else. Something like that is not happening with them. And are you saying that lots of other people might have, you know, a mis um, almost an inappropriate erotic experience and then they learn from it. They go, oh no. And they kind of move into a more societally approved way of being erotic. Well, I don't know if they have a moment of saying, oh, no, but <laughs> for, whatever, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they, uh, they end up with the target that nature intended for purposes of reproduction. Um, I, I suppose I think there's no control group here. We've got a theory here that some people have a, an erotic mislearning and the rest of us learn from it. But I, I I don't suppose there's any group that we could say, yes, I was that person who had who had a kind of, uh, like I say, some sort of inappropriate sexual experience. And I went, I learned from it and I moved on into a more um, healthy sexual orientation. I'm not sure I, I fully understand your question. I don't, I don't 
you mean are are you saying is there are there any studies of people who corrected their erotic mislearnings? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm saying in statu nascendi. Yeah, yeah. I suppose we, I'm saying that with, there couldn't be, and therefore I suppose this theory is a kind of untestable. Even though I think it's a very, very likely theory, I can't see how we can test it. Well, I, I would say not at not at our present level of of uh, neuroimaging techniques but who knows in 20 30 50 years whether or not it will be oh. possible to say look at the brain and say aha this person has this this thing in their brain that correlates with with you know multiple paraphilias wow. and this must be you know the thing that that should be correcting erotic learning and is not correcting erotic learning aha uh-huh. would you say maybe i mean i'm kind of taking this to its further extremities too like in your work with sex offenders, perhaps had you seen any pattern that follows that trajectory where perhaps at some point in a, in an individual's life, they were offending quite a bit and uh, they were able to shift either their sense of control over their behavior or their erotic desires in a way that it was not no longer offending. I mean, are there patterns like that where somebody's able to either control or minimize their erotic mislearning? Uh, there certainly are, are pedophile. Look, look, pedophiles are men who are more attracted sexually to the child physique than to the adult physique. That doesn't necessarily mean they have zero attraction to the adult physique. It just means they don't have as much attraction. So, uh, you know, if a guy is pedophilic and um, maybe gets arrested a few times, experiences horrible consequences of offending against a child, yeah, sure, some of them can move on and, and make an adaptation to uh, establishing a relationship with an adult, usually an adult woman. I don't, I don't know how much you want to make of that. They, mm. they probably had some some capacity to respond erotically to an adult woman to begin with. And they've been punished severely for having acted out sexually with children. So they they go with their with their secondary number two choice of erotic objects. I don't know how profound that is. And how how many? I wonder. I don't know if there's any answer to this. But is there many or any studies of people who have pedophilic um, tendencies and they don't act on them? I believe there are. Yes, I absolutely believe there are people who are pedophiles. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't soften it and say pedophilic tendencies. I would say definitely there are men who are erotically prefer child's bodies to adults' bodies, who are aware that they have this preference and who make the conscious decision that whatever happens, I have to be sure I don't act out on this. Well, I often think that because I often think like in a way that what you get attracted to like certainly if you're me can be quite off the wall but acting on it is a whole other step and to me they're two different people as such you know what I mean you can't help what you're attracted to but you can certainly help on acting on it and to me it's it's adding a whole dollop of an aspect of the person that they would act on it yeah I I completely agree with you I mean there, there probably are, are pretty intelligent, intact people who do act on their paraphilias. But I would say in general, probably a guy is more likely to act on a paraphilic tendency if they have less 
psychological resources, less self-control, less ability to inhibit uh, unacceptable impulses or impulses that are not in their own interests. So yeah, I think there's a whole second layer of personality factors and cognitive abilities that that influence whether a paraphilic guy acts on his paraphilias or or controls himself. I want to ask you just to kind of wrap up our conversation on the topic of autogynephilia. What do you say is the most misunderstood or misinterpreted thing that that people think about autogynephilia that you have a chance to kind of correct right now? I've seen a lot of people like online think that a, a male is either autogynephilic or transsexual. And so they'll say, oh, this is not really a transsexual. This is an autogynophile. That's not how I conceptualize things at all. I think you can be autogynephilic and transsexual. And I think that's an important point. Mm. And so how do you define transsexual? Is it more like... Uh, as an action step, like once somebody has medically transitioned or taken certain steps, or how do you define a transsexual? I just, I just define a transsexual as the highest degree of gender dysphoria. You know, mm. I, I, I understand that there used to be people, I mean, that the word transsexual has been defined in many different ways, uh, which makes it confusing. And there, there was a point at which some people wanted to reserve the word transsexual for post-operative individuals. I never went that way. Okay. I just, I just defined <clears throat> transsexualism as the most severe degree of gender dysphoria. And we're coming towards the end. And I, I, I do know you were um, involved in kind of uh, the research that kind of identified that uh, uh, gay men were more likely to have older brothers. Yes. Yeah. And um, in the same manner of, of how we, we become, let's say, heterosexual, do you think that homosexuality could be developed or do you think like, like literally they're born with it? I know I keep on going on about this. I'm very interested in this. Uh, in this particular case, with regard to homosexuality, um, you know, it's hard to eliminate environmental influences 100%. But I would say that the bulk of influence on sexual orientation, certainly in males, the bulk of the influences is biological rather than environmental. Yeah. I mean, a biological thing can also be environmental. For example, with males, I've talked about uh, the possible role of a maternal immune response uh, to the fetus having an effect, have increasing the likelihood of homosexuality in a male fetus. That's environmental, but it's bi- also biological, right? So uh, there can be environmental explanations that are also biological. And that's kind of uh, what I think about I think that's one influence on sexual orientation in males. Uh, and then the genetic stuff, of course, would not be environmental because that would be just a direct, more or less direct line between uh, predisposing genes and the developing erotic interest. And uh, yeah, just one last question. because I don't want you to leave without all, all the questions I've wanted to ask you. And I'm, I'm really, really have been so interested in this conversation. But autoandrophilia, have you had much kind of thoughts on that ever since and certainly I've noticed more people talking about it now than they've ever spoken about it before yeah and that I guess would be a good thing if they were if they were 
if they were virgin patients talking to clinicians who knew how to do an interview and, 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 you know, uh, uh, in all the, the years that I worked at the gender clinic, as I said, 15 years, there were two women, two biological yeah. females who came in and said, um, I'm attracted to men and I want to become a gay man. And I felt that they were different from autogynophiles because I felt that their primary interest was in becoming a gay man and having sex with other men as a gay man. Whereas with the autogynophiles, it seems to me the primary thing is I want to be a woman and being a quote unquote lesbian is a secondary development. Oh, I'm attracted to women. I want to be a woman. Oh, I'll be a lesbian. Perfect. It takes mm-hmm. care of everything. Uh, you know, whereas I, I think that that's a kind of resolution of being a quote unquote lesbian, I think is a kind of resolution of conflicting impulses for autogynophilic male to females. But I think that the idea of being a gay man is, uh, is, is a primary goal for the uh, females who want to become I hear you. I've always wondered about the autogynophiles. How come in middle age, when you would think that their heightened sex drive would have been maybe their early 20s, how come so many of them choose to transition later, a good 20 years maybe after the height of their sex drive? Well, it's a very good question, one that exercised me a lot back in the day when I was working on this topic. And, you know, all I can say about it is, I think it's a mistake to think of sexuality in men as everything that happens with an erection. You know, I think that that you have to con- con- uh, conceive of of erotic motivation of all the behaviors that in some way are part of a nexus of of erotic motivations. Uh, they don't always involve erection or. Uh, you know, stuff that we narrowly think of as sexual. And so I think it's possible that uh, these middle-aged guys that you're talking about, and of course I've seen them, uh, I, I think that their gender dysphoria has an erotic foundation, but I don't think it continues to be erotic in the sense of every time they think of themselves as women, they get an erection. Yeah, I mean, when you say that, it makes me think about, uh, you know, I think there's a metaphorically true statement when people say, I feel like there's a woman inside of me that I want to become, you know, like there is a kind of sense of loving this alternate identity that the person has. That's not just about erections and masturbation and ejaculation. Like there really does seem to be something metaphorically powerful about this idea of a person inside of oneself that they want to release to the world per se. So I wonder if it's like, people in their 40s perhaps have a little more financial stability and maybe they know themselves a little better and maybe they have the ability to come out, which might be something quite disruptive to life, more so than somebody in their 20s. Like, Do you, do you have any sense about that? Yeah, I, I think you also have to, um, I'm, I'm trying to think how to, how to explain this in a clear way. I think that when, when men are younger, they have a lot of excess libido. And some of that excess libido can be, can be channeled towards socially desirable, but actually second choice erotic oh, objects. When you get to middle age, you have less libido. There's not so much left over for your second and third choices. And, and I think that that can be one reason why, um, 
they're prepared to sacrifice uh, a marriage and mm. possibly relationship with their children and pursue pursue the idea of living as a woman. When you see the accounts of the what what are often called trans widows, which are are widow women who have been married to autogynophiles. Um, they talk an awful lot about narcissism and an awful lot of cruel behaviour that seems very sadistic. And when I first read about it, I thought, is there some sort of, just like you said, cluster, is there some sort of cluster of, you know, AGP and narcissism and like, might there be more of a propensity of a certain type of AGP to have certain qualities that just seem incredibly cruel to, to their wife? Or is that just the people we're hearing about because they are the women who are have been most impacted by it. Almost like with alcoholism, there's an awful lot of people who, who've been hurt by alcoholics. And then there are also violent alcoholics. And there's certainly a spectrum, but th- th- they're not always the same, if you follow me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I certainly I you know, saw a lot of autogynophilic male to female transsexuals who were in the process of of uh, breaking up their marriages or had uh, had broken up a marriage. And I, I would say they certainly varied. Some of them were just so self-absorbed mm. and so selfish that I think to the wife it probably came across as sadism. You know, I'm sorry, I can't possibly take out the garbage. I'm doing my nails, can't you see? Ugh, um, yeah. uh, so, but I, you know, I think it's, I, I think a lot of what the trans widows are objecting to uh is a product of just selfishness and self-absorption on the part of their husbands rather than a positive desire to to hurt their wives. That's what I kind of think. Got it. Well, it's been really fascinating to talk with you and pick your brain. And I feel like Stella and I just had rounds and rounds of bottled up questions <laughs> that we threw your way. So thank you for answering them so thoughtfully. Wait, before you go, before you oh, go, yes. one thing. I, yes. Okay, just one thing I wanted to say, um, and I say it whenever I can. When I, you know, I did not invent the word autogynophilia to be an insult or a, a rebuke. You know, I invented it as a neutral clinical descriptor of a particular class of patients, not as an insult. Um, and of course, it's dismaying to me mm. that it is now used as an insult. That was not my intention ever. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it now except to say when I can, look, this was not what I had in mind when I invented the word autogynophilia or tried to describe the phenomenon. I was just describing a category of patients in the same way, you know, if you're a cancer researcher and you describe the progress of a certain kind of tumor, doesn't mean you're rooting for the tumor, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that was just a, a point I wanted to make. And I also, there are perfectly reasonable autogynophiles. There are perfectly reasonable autogynophilic male to female transsexuals. You don't see them as much because they tend not to be jerks, Yeah, you know? Um, Definitely. But, and that was the only thing I wanted to slip in before we wound up. Really yeah, thank you, you. I mean, just on that note, I feel so um, glad when I see young men, whether they are transitioning to female or not, who are able to say, you know what, this description really fits me. It gave me a language for something that I didn't know how to understand. And so I really um, think it's incredibly valuable that we as people who are talking about this topic, just try to bring that neutrality back to the term rather than having it unfortunately be used like an accusation sometimes. So thank you for making that point. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.